0: The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg This part of the Tanya, by the way, was not, not added by the altar but this was added after he passed away by his children. These are letters that Alter Rebbe himself wrote, but it's not part of the Tanya. When Alter Rebbe published the Tanya, first he published the part one and part two together. Each one of them has an introduction. Then, a few years later, he added the third part of the Tanya that we just concluded, the letter of Teshuvah, of, re, of return. This was added by the children. The fourth and fifth part were added by the, by the children after he passed away. It is the letters the Alter Rebbe himself wrote in his own handwriting, his own his own you know his own pen. But it wasn't part of the Tanya. They made it part of the Tanya. They added it. The many things in the Tanya that are explained briefly in the Tanya, but in these letters are explained are explained at great length. You know, every letter is very has a lot of depth to it. The Rebbe would write letters, and every word in the in the letter. For a holiday, with commentaries, explanations, footnotes, because you see from the letters of Alter Rebbe, it's not just letters. These are every word, every letter is so filled with meaning. And so, this book and the next book are all letters. Yeah, and the next uh, volume five, except that volume five after the letters is a Kuntus achron. Kuntus achron is the fifth part of the Tanya. Very short, like five essays five essays or six essays. Essays explaining seeming contradictions in the Kabbalah and clarifying a lot of the points that he made in the Tanya. That Also the children added. These were essays written by the Alter Rebbe but he didn't put it as part of this book. The children added it. And that's the conclusion of the Tanya. They edited them also or they were all complete? No, letter, letters these are the letters of al They didn't edit. It. Uh-huh. These are his, his words, his letters. They didn't uh-huh. edit. So they just had them published. They had them published. But they chose which letters, and not all letters were complete. Not all letters were completely published, only the part that was, they felt was relevant. Al-Tarebi used every opportunity to inspire, to guide, to direct, to encourage his Hasidim. So these are letters Al-Tarebi wrote his chassidim. Um, most of them are like public letters. I I don't think there's any one single letter here, it's just to an individual. Most of these letters are to communities, to all of the Hasidim. So they're more, you know, the Rebbe wrote thousands of letters in his life. The children chose 32. There's only 32 of his vast amount of letters. They chose these letters because they're pertinent, they're relevant to everyone. Each letter discusses an idea in depth. You know, it wasn't just a letter. Hello, how are you? What did you eat for dinner last night? You know, uh, these are letters filled with with content, you know, with uh, meaning. So the Alter Rebbe used his pen and used letters to encourage and again to communicate Hasidus. So he communicated Hasidus by speaking by teaching, or through his Hasidic discourses. He communicated Hasidus through private audiences, Yechidus. He communicated Hasidus by writing. And he communicated Hasidus through his letters. Again, to reach communities that are very far. Not everyone had the opportunity to come, to travel. In those days, it was a whole big deal to travel. If you traveled once in your lifetime, twice in your lifetime, and you saw the Alter Rebbe, that was already a lot. People didn't travel, you know, it wasn't like you were born in your shtetl and you died in your shtetl, and you, it was very difficult to travel, especially from far. But a letter, a letter, something Alter Rebbe used to send letters to the Hasidim, that's how they kept in touch, that there was a communication. Like the king is in this palace, and he sends a royal letter that's his communication to, the, to his palace. To, I mean to, to his subjects. To the the Alter Rebbe sent letters and that was like a lifeline connection between the Alter and his Hasidim. So this was another way the way he conveyed Hasidus. So the children incorporated it. The sons of al Alter Rebbe after his passing incorporated it into the book of Tanya. Because it's the same idea. What's the Tanya? The Tanya is communicating Hasidus. These letters were also ways, a means, a way the way that Al Rebbe communicated the the teachings of the Baal So So this is part and parcel of the Tanya. It's, a, it's an organically, it's organically fits with the rest of the Tanya. Especially there are many points in the Tanya that are, are clarified in the letters. With Alter Rebbe elaborates in the letters and points that he made um, in the previous parts of the Tanya. Epistle 1, letter 1. Page 3, this letter was actually written 10 years before Al Alter was released from prison and 8 years before the Tanya was published. This first letter. The first part of the letter was actually written many years before that. When Alter Rebbe first left his students behind and went to Rabbi Dovber, became a Chassid, the Magad of Mizrich, And he wrote his students the first part of this letter actually a very interesting story about that. The Alter Rebbe, he heard that there were two centers of Jewish life. There was Vilna, the the Goen of Vilna. It was a center of Torah, passion of Torah, a fortress. And the Vilna Goen was like the king of the fortress. And then there was Mizrich, which was the Hasidic center, nerve center. If you wanted to learn, know how to learn, you go to Vilna and there you'll know how to learn but if you want to learn how to pray there you have to go to Mizrach there you learn how to pray the Rebbe thought to himself to learn, I know a little how to learn as they tell the ones that they asked the Rebbe, who do you think knows how to learn better you or the Vilna Goyim and he says the revealed part of the Torah I know how to learn better than him the Kabbalah, he actually knows how to learn better than I the Vilna Goyen was very great in the Kabbalah. He spent more time studying Kabbalah than he did the reveal part of the Torah. Um, he said, anyone who doesn't understand the Kabbalah has no right giving a halachic verdict. You know, that part, the L- Lithuanians don't talk about that part of the Vilna Goyen. <laughs> uh, That was a major part of the Vilna Goyen. But he said, to learn, I know a little how to learn. But to daven, to pray, I don't know, I don't know anything about to pray. You know, I really need a, a teacher, a master, a guide to show me out to pray. So he went to And He was actually very impressed. He saw the holy students, the holy rabbis and they were so spiritual and mystical and the way they prayed and the way they, they, they uh, fabrenged together. He was, very, he was very moved by the whole experience. But after a week he decided to leave. He said, you know, it's very nice. It's beautiful, but... I didn't see any learning to my level. I don't see the learning. I see the praying all day and the studying Kabbalah all day. But he didn't see any scholarship, any brilliant scholarship. He said, you know, it's very nice, but it's not for me. So he left. Picked up his bag somewhere. As soon as he left, he realized he left something behind. So he went back to pick up his bag. When he went back, a woman came in to the study hall and she had a question they slaughtered her chicken and it was a question it's kosher not kosher most of the questions that the rabbis got in those days was about slaughtering a chicken or slaughtering a cow you know if you can afford it's probably a year's salary to afford a cow you finally afford you you slaughtered an animal and it's it's a question if it's kosher and the rabbi would have to work so hard and sweat and try to make sure that it's kosher and it was a very question very questionable And Rabbi Dov Ber was sitting with his students and they were discussing the issue. And he says, the scholarship, the level of scholarship, the level of the discussion, the brilliance and the caliber, the scholarship was flying right, left, and center. He was so impressed with the brilliance of the the, the caliber of scholarship. He realized that these are geniuses who are masters of the Talmud, masters of Aloha, who knew the Talmud backwards and forwards, and especially he heard his teacher, his master, Rabbi Dov Ber, who had a reputation before he became a chassid. There wasn't a single Jewish book that was published that he hasn't reviewed 102 times. He was thoroughly familiar with every Jewish book that was published. That's how brilliant a scholar he was. And he saw this, and Al Rebbe was taken. He says, Okay, this is it. <laughs> I don't have to go anywhere else. Everything I need, I'll find here. Scholarship coupled with davening. It's so one thing people daven very nicely, but if there's no scholarship and there's no brilliance and there's no there's no mind, it's not for me. But when he saw the combination that not only was was the scholars par excellence, but they were also mystics and spiritual and warm, and, and he said, "This is my this is soulful, this is the place for me," and he, he stayed and he remained a So an Alta rebbe. When he left his students and he went to mizrich that's when he wrote the first part of the letter. And then there were another two times the letter was written over three different, three different periods. The second part of the letter was written when his teacher revealed to him what the mission of his soul was. So he wrote the second part of the letter. And the third part of the letter was written once his students, after he came back, from and he started communicating and conveying the Hasidic teachings to his students. And they in turn started traveling around Lithuania and different parts of Eastern Europe and establishing beachheads, so to speak, for Hasidus, and teaching and communicating and conveying the revolution of Hasidus. So he wrote the third part of the letter. So this was a letter that was written over three periods. first letter begins, he says, Poyzchen <laughs> bebracha." H 3, we begin with a benediction. To bless and to give thanks to God, for He is good. So we begin with a blessing. The Jewish custom is, you begin with a blessing. Jews gather together, they always begin with a blessing. Where do we learn this from? The Torah begins with a blessing. Veracious. The, the, the Talmudic rabbis ask, why does the Torah start with a base? The Torah should have started with an Aleph. Why does the Torah start with a Beis? Aleph is the first letter. Aleph is the first letter of the Ten Commandments. So the Torah should have started with an Aleph. Why does the Torah start with a Beis? And the rabbis answer, because Beis stands for Bracha, a blessing. So the Torah starts with a Beis, it starts with a blessing. And Aleph, on the other hand, Aleph can mean curse. It's very puzzling. If you take it at face value, it doesn't make any sense what Aleph is cursed, Aleph is the first letter the holiest letter, the beginning of the Ten Commandments the opening of the Ten Commandments starts with an Aleph what do you mean Aleph? and Beis? there are many words that start with Beis that have the opposite meaning of blessed why would the Torah start with a Beis? so Chassidus explains that Aleph represents the highest level of, of Godliness Aleph, if you turn the word Aleph itself, the way it's pronounced, if you turn the letters around, it's Pele. Aleph is Aleph Lamed pei. Aleph. The way you pronounce the Aleph, Aleph. If you turn the letters around, it's Pele. If you read the word backwards, from the end to the front, it's Pele. Pele means wonder. It, it, it signifies the level of Kete, the transcendent level of Gadin, which is like a wonder beyond our comprehension. Because God is so wondrous. God is so beyond our comprehension. God is beyond our whole frame of reference. God is so infinitely great that all of existence is nothing to God. And therefore, since God is so high and so transcendent, therefore, it's like the analogy of when you're in the royal palace and the palace is so stunningly beautiful and such high ceilings and that in a little corner, on the ceiling, you can end up with uh, with cobwebs. And no, no one even notices, Because so the, the palace is so wondrous and so astonishing, you, you wouldn't even notice something like that. Because you, know, you don't even see it. You don't even pay attention. It doesn't take away from the greatness of the palace. A little cobweb in some corner up there on the ceiling... It's so huge, you can hardly even see it. You don't even notice it. All you see is the, this the glorious, stunning, beautifully beautiful palace. That's the problem that happens that when, when godliness is so transcendent and you're dealing with a level of godliness where it's pellet, it's wondrous, it's so beyond our comprehension that the God, as the prophet says, the righteous and the wicked one are all the same. He doesn't even notice. It doesn't matter. It doesn't doesn't register. It doesn't make a difference. It doesn't register. Someone is evil. I mean, we're insignificant. It doesn't mean anything. And therefore, the evil one, the wicked one, could receive life sustenance. From that level, the wicked people could receive life sustenance. Because we're so insignificant that it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter. So you could be wicked and yet you could be successful and you can receive life. And that's what it means. That the Torah could not start with the Aleph. Had the Torah started with the Aleph, that means the revelation would have been so transcendent, so wondrous, so beyond our comprehension, that as a result, the negative forces, negativity and evil, would have received an abundance of life, a surge of energy. And it wouldn't bother anyone. And the purpose of creation was God wanted evil to be eradicated. God wanted goodness to triumph and evil and negativity and darkness to be eradicated. So therefore, God created the world with a base. God like confined himself and limited himself. And when he he confined himself there, negativity does register. It's like when a person is asleep. A fly can crawl over your face. You don't even feel it because you, when you're asleep, you're subconscious, and your subconscious level, flies can be crawling all over your face. You don't notice it; it doesn't bother you. But when you're awake and you're conscious, a fly crawling over your face, you slap it away. It bothers you. What are you doing? Out of here, mosquito. Slap it down in your sleep. Mosquitoes can come. You wake up in the morning, you're bitten. You you didn't even notice it. Because you're you're in such a wondrous place. You're in your subconscious level. You're such a high place that you don't notice these things. Mosquitoes, bugs, flies, it doesn't bother you. But when you're in a conscious level, when you're limited, conscious is, is very limited. Conscious level is a very low level. It's the lowest level. It's the tip of the iceberg. When you're limited, there, are the fly, the mosquito bothers you. Negativity, evil, arrogance. Oh, they, that you can't stand. You have to get rid of it. That's the blessing. The blessing is the base. That because the Torah, God, so to speak, contracted Himself and concentrated Himself on a conscious level, and therefore, the, the divine energy will only flow to the good. And God hates evil. And... Ultimately, evil will be eradicated as a result of the Torah, as a result of the mitzvot. Evil will be eradicated. So that's the blessing. That's the base. But we see the Torah begins with a blessing. We begin with a blessing. It's interesting that the Rebbe names this part. I mean, this name, the children of Alter Rebbe, name this part of the Tanya. hakodesh, the letter, the holy letter. Because only through blessing do you make sure that the energy should only go, flow into holiness. Because when you have the olive, you can have mosquitoes, you can have negativity. It's, it's, there's no, it, energy won't only flow towards holiness. Even the negative energy can also receive life sustenance. But when you start with a blessing, then you make sure that all that energy should only flow in the right place. Holy letter. The question that the Rebbe asks is, why did they call it in the singular, Igeret HaKodesh? There are 32 letters. In. It should have been in the plural, *igrot* HaKodesh. In the plural. Why does it say in the singular? One letter. The holy letter. The holy letters. So he says, maybe you can say, because it's a continuation of Igeret HaTshuva, the letter of Shuva, which is singular. So they named this also Igeret HaKodesh, even though it's not a satisfying answer. And he remains with the question. He doesn't answer the question. The question is better than the answer. Let's put it that way. Why is it called Igeret HaKodesh? One letter. It's many letters, but really it's only one letter. Maybe that's the truth, that really it's all one letter. There's is one, is one point. The same point is spelled out this way and that way and the other way. You know, someone once asked when he studies Hasidut, it all comes back to the same point that all there is is God and there is nothing else. So he says, "Yeah, you're right, but it's true." <laughs> so, <laughs> so you say it in this way, you say it in that way, you say it in a different way. You can say it in a thousand different ways, but ultimately it, it does all come back to the same point. All oh, roads lead to Jerusalem. So ultimately, the 32 letters, but really, which is heart, but it's really there's one point in the heart. It's one point. It's one direction. It's not scattered, fragmented. So whatever the explanation is. Aldridge says we start with a blessing and the reason he wrote this letter is because a year before that the year before he wrote this letter 1748 49 he wrote this letter because a year before that we have a letter the end of the tanya the very last the very last essay in the fifth part of the tanya which was written a year before that either 1748 or 1747, Dalta Rebbe enacted that each and every community they should study the entire Talmud. Every year they should study the entire Talmud. How is it possible for a person to study the entire Talmud in one year? It's not possible. For 99.9% of us it's not possible. As a matter of fact, there are very few people who study it in the, over the whole lifetime. But at least one Every year, a person should cover a tractate. You should study one entire tractate. Every Jew should study one entire tractate over the year. But by the community dividing the Talmud amongst themselves, this one will study this tractate, the other one will study the other tractate. So then collectively, it's as if everyone studied the whole entire Talmud. Because since I cannot study the entire Talmud, by myself, and you cannot study the entire Talmud by yourself in one year. So we have a ruling in the laws of Shabbat. Those who study Dafyemi just learned it, that if two people do violate Shabbat, let's say they lift up an object together. So if both people lift up an object together and carry it out, if they can both carry it on their own, but when two, so then they're obligated, but if they do it together, Where each one could do it on his own, but they're just doing it together, they're not obligated. It's prohibited, but you're not obligated. Biblically, you're not obligated. Because the Torah says only when an individual sins, an individual does it by himself. So the fact that both of them are carrying it, in the case where each one can carry it on his own, and yet they're both carrying it together and carrying it out, lifting it up and placing it outside and placing it outside, they are exempt. They don't have to bring the offering. They don't have to bring a sacrifice. They have not, biblically, they have not violated the Shabbat. Rabbinically, it's prohibited. However, let's say it's a heavy object. And neither of them can carry it on their own. Only both together, they can carry it. So here, the majority of the rabbis hold, and that's the halacha. And in this case, they are obligated. Since neither of them can carry it by themselves. The only way to carry it is by two people carrying it together. So therefore, they're both obligated. They both violated Shabbat, and they both have to bring a sacrifice. They did it unintentionally. So based on that principle, since neither individual, no individual could study the whole Talmud by himself, the whole Shas in one single year by himself, all the tractates, so by each one lifting it together, you'll do one tractate. There's a division of labor. You'll do another tractate, then together if they cover the whole entire Shas together, it's as if by the end of the year when each one concludes his own tractate, it's as if they've concluded the whole entire Shas. So each one has the merit each one has the merit of studying the whole entire Shas. This is much better than you have the merit as if you study the whole entire Talmud by this division of labor. Each one, it's considered as if he finished the whole entire Talmud. And the truth is, even someone who could study the entire Shas, like uh, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein would study the whole entire Shas every single year, would make a scene, the whole entire Shas. He would wake up every morning at 4 or 5 in the morning, and he would study 6 pages or or 7 pages of Talmud every day, and if you study seven pages of Talmud every day, six, seven pages, in one year he finished the whole entire shas. Every year he used to make a seam and the whole entire shot, single-handedly. Even such a person should participate in this division. The Rebbe himself would finish shas every single year. And yet he participated in this division. He would write a note, take upon himself one tractate, join in the community. Why? Because we have a concept also in Jewish law. In Jewish law, let's say one person was blessed with a business sense. But he wasn't blessed, he doesn't have the mind to study Torah, he doesn't have the zitzvah to study Torah, he doesn't have the ability, the opportunity. And then you have the Torah scholar. So halachically, legally, they can enter into a partnership. You'll provide for all my needs, like Yisachar and Zavulin, the two tribes. Zavulin provided for all the needs. They were the business people. They went out, traveled in the boats, and traveled all over the world. They did the commerce, and Yisachar were those who sat and studied Torah. And there was a division of labor, and they became partners. And each one received, he received 50% of his business profit, and they received 50% of the reward of their Torah study. So they were all in this together. So then halachically, it's it's a partnership. It's a real partnership. It's a real division. So even though they're physically not studying Torah, the other ones get the merit of the studying Torah of their partner. So too so to here also. Even a person who could study the entire shahs by himself, but by joining with his group, he enables the others, he gives them the merit to be able to be considered as if they finished the entire Talmud. Because when the whole community joins in together, and this one studies this tractate, this one studies another tractate, each one is not only studying for himself, he's studying a tractate of Talmud over the year, but he's also giving another Jew the merit as if every, everyone who's participating in this circle, as if they've studied this tractate. So to be, in, to be in a position to give another Jew that merit, to let him in, and to give him that opportunity, that he, although he only studied one tractate and yet he has the merit as if he studied the whole entire shah, this is something unique and unusual. And Al Alter Rebbe, this was the first year after Al Alter Rebbe enacted this, made this enactment. And Al Alter is writing a letter of thanks, giving thanks for the good news. That a year later, most of the communities have listened to his appeal. And they went ahead and they enacted it. And they studied the entire shahs. Each one took upon himself track tractate. Everyone finished it. And... In every community, it's as if every Jew living in that community, all those who participated in the circle, as if they finished the entire Shas. So so this was never done before. Al-Tarebi was so excited that his idea, Quran, and his suggestion, Quran, and was implemented, that the first year Al-Tarebi writes a special thanks as we begin with a blessing, and we have to thank Hashem for this great news. Because Hashem is good. When we hear good news... We have to immediately express our gratitude to Hashem. The great news is my soul has heard and been revived by the good tidings. What's good tidings? Good refers to Torah. Good signifies Torah. As our sages state in Tractate Avot in the sixth chapter. And it says also in Tilim and Psalms, God's Torah, which is perfectly whole. So now that they've concluded the entire. With this division. So now the Torah is whole and complete. The above remarks refer to the completion of the whole Talmud in its entirety. In most towns and congregations of Anash, the men, Anash is an acronym for Anshre Shlemenu, meaning the men of our Hasidic brotherhood, it was like the brotherhood of Hasidim, it was like a family. So I'm giving thanks for the fact that they finished the entire shahs. He says, Kol kule, The entire shahs, and he adds, kule, all of it. Because in many cases, we say 99% is enough. If you do the most of it, it's fine. It doesn't have to be perfect. Here he says, no. They literally finished 100% of the shahs. Every single one between themselves. They divided it that everyone covered, every letter, every word, of the entire Shas, not only the Talmudic tractates, and many portions of the Mishnah that have no Talmudic tractates, and even that was divided. They covered all the Mishnah and all the Talmud, was entirely 100% covered. Now you can say Torah Hashem Tamimah, the Torah of God is whole and complete. So for such great news that the oral Torah, the Shas, which incorporates the oral Torah, the Talmud, which incorporates the whole entire old Torah was completed in its entirety. This is tremendous news. And for that, we have to give thanks to Hashem. He says so much for gratitude and respect for past accomplishments. And now, a request for the future. Now that you know that you can do this, don't stop. This should be repeated each and every year. And you should go from strength to strength. May God thus continue from year to year to grant added strength to your hearts amongst the mighty. With the mighty of the Torah. Because human nature is, the first time is very exciting. Second time, the third time, so he's wishing and hoping that on the contrary, with every passing year, you should strengthen yourself. It should be with a renewed vigor, a renewed excitement. Take this, this excitement that you had this year and bottle it, and next year you should only grow and it should become even more exciting. Do it a second time, and then the third time, and then a the fourth time, and we're doing it till today, it's done. Hundreds of years later, it's still being done. In communities all across the world. From strength to strength. to strengthen the hearts of the mighty. Gibayrim. In the plural. Even though every individual is studying his own tractate alone. Because everyone took a different tractate. He can't learn with anyone else. Everyone took a separate tractate. He has to learn alone. Yet the al rebbe says you're not learning alone. When you're studying your tractate, you have the advantage of studying in public. We know just like in prayer. When you pray alone or you pray with a minion, you pray with a Korah. You can't compare the two prayers. So too, in studying Torah, you can't compare studying Torah alone or studying Torah in public. It says in Ethics of Our Fathers, you study with 10 people. So he's saying by you joining the circle and by taking upon yourself a tractate and being part of this division, you're studying your tractate and there are at least 10 other Jews and many more are studying their tractates. And they, are, so, and they get the merit of your tractate. It's as if each and every one finished the entire shot. So when you study your tractate, it's the public that's learning. It's not just you're learning for yourself. You're learning, the whole public is learning this tractate. So you have the added advantage of studying Torah as if you're studying it in public. This is, this is a great novelty. This is a great innovation. You can study Torah by yourself, and yet you have the advantage of as if you're studying Torah in public. You know, today you can sit and study tighter by yourself. You can be with a camera on the internet. <laughs> and you're studying tighter with millions of people. But, but this is an innovation. You're studying tighter by yourself. And yet, you're part of the strong, of the brave, the courageous, because you're not studying alone. You're part of this circle, this virtuous circle. God should give and God should add. we know that when God adds a blessing, the addition is greater than the original. And where do we learn this from? We learn this from Chizkiah, the king Chizkiah. Chizkiah was very ill. It says in the prophet, he became very ill. He was dying. And he turned his face to the wall and he cried and he prayed. And Hashem blessed him and he gave him additional years. And I think till that point he was a king for 14 years and with Hashem's blessings he added another 15 years. So you see, Hashem's addition is more than, than the principle. <laughs> when we add something, a bonus, the bonus is a fraction of the principle. Hashem's bonus is much more than the principle. I think on Wall Street they follow that dictum. <laughs> <laughs> the bonus, Hashem's bonus, Hashem's addition is much greater than the principle. So he says, <laughs> Hashem should give, continue to give, and he should add. And zeal and zest and enthusiasm and vigor. And next week we're going to continue. This is just the giving thanks. And next week is going to explain the uh, unique quality of studying Torah, especially, specifically, <coughs> studying Shas, the oral Torah, and the tremendous, tremendous effect that studying the Torah and studying Talmud has on us. Surprising effect. Effect that we don't expect. We're not just legalese, we're not just studying legal law, dry technical mechanical law, but actually studying the Talmud has such a profound effect on us. And that we're going to to be continued next week. Does anyone have any questions on the Tanya? Was he motivated to write it out of need? Oh. Because of yes. the need for it? or was he motivated to write it out of movement from Hashem and would we be able to see in the letters his personal motivations in writing? Well, al Rebbe was very hesitant to write. He was, very, uh, he was very modest. And he really did not want to publish it, but there were some things that triggered it. Um, the opponents were so brazen that they actually burnt the first Book. I think the first they burned the first published Hasidic work, which was from the student of the Baal And Then they burned a book of another book of the Baal and it was so chutzpided and so brazen. The Alter says, "Okay, enough. You know, we have to respond fire with fire. So it's time to publish his works. For that's when the Alter gave the green light to publish the Tanya." But the Tanya was articulated over twenty years. It was now, the He wrote it. He was careful with every letter, every word. The publishing of the Tanya ultimately was part of the um, vision that the Baal Shem Tov had. The Baal Shem Tov had a vision on Rosh Hashanah. His soul ascended to heaven, and we have a letter from the Baal Shem Tov. He describes his soul ascended to heaven. I believe it was in the year. 1640, 46. And he, he ascended higher and higher. And he never ascended so high before in his life. He always, his soul always ascended in heaven. While he was alive. He was able to ascend heaven. But this time he ascended higher than uh, usually. He ascended to the palace of Mashiach. And it was a big joy. He never saw such rejoicing in heaven. For a moment he thought the rejoicing that his soul passed away. And that his soul has ascended on high. He told him, no, you still have a lot of work to do here in this world. And he couldn't explain, he couldn't understand why the tremendous joy. And when he met Mashiach, the soul of Mashiach, he asked him, when is, when is Mashiach going to come? When is the Master going to come? This was already, at that time, 1700 years after the destruction of the Second Temple. The Jews were in exile already for 1700 years. The first exile in Egypt, they were in exile for 210 years. The second exile, the Babylonian exile, was, lasted 70 years. Here, they were in exile for 1,700 years. He says, when are you coming already? And Mashiach's response was, When your wellsprings will spread throughout the world, that is when, that is when I will come. It says, the Barsham of cried. When is this going to happen? How is this possible? On the wellsprings of Hasidus, the crown jewels of the Torah will spread throughout all four corners of the world. And uh, the Baal Shem, the Alter dedicated his life and sacrificed his life. He was like the spearhead. He was like the, the tip of the spear that will implement this he was in the front line like the warrior that will implement this and he took it upon himself to actually he was told by his teacher his teacher, the Rabbi Dov Be'er, the Maggid of Mizritch, the second leader of the Hasidic movement revealed to him what the Bar revealed to him which was revealed to the Bar by his teacher which was Ahir HaShiloyni who was one of those who left Egypt and uh, was stood at Mount Sinai and lived over 500 years and was the seventh in line of the transmission of Torah. And he was the Vashemta's personal teacher. And he revealed to the Vashemta, revealed to the Magid who told the Alta Rebbe who his soul was and what his purpose is. That he, his soul came down into this world and he is going to be the one who's going to implement this vision, this directive of. Mashiach to the Vashemtev, that when your wellsprings will spread throughout the whole world. And when you will communicate the wellsprings to the whole world. And Al Rebbe was the first one to really articulate it, to put it in the book form. And when you put it in the book, it's forever. A book, when you print something, it's forever. This transmission has been brought down, has been communicated, has been publicized, brought down, and revealed. In a way that everyone can grasp and everyone could wrap their mind around, and everyone could, could understand. So, this was the Alta Rebbe's soul, had this tremendous responsibility, and he um, took it upon himself, knowing that there's going to be tremendous dangers because there's going to be tremendous opposition. Because every step of the way, whenever there was a tremendous breakthrough, a revelation of Hasidus, there was always an opposition. Tremendous opposition. Because if if this gets out, if this word gets out, if the secrets of the Torah get out, it's the end of exile. It's the end of ego, the end of arrogance, the end of exile, the end of darkness, the end of death, pain, suffering so this is no good for business (laughs) so this tremendous opposition the satan puts up tremendous opposition in many shapes and forms one way is by burying the tanya making sure nobody gets to it, nobody hears it nobody sees it, downplaying its importance, it's all part of the opposition because it's such a powerful light it's such a powerful and the Alter Rebbe sacrifices life to publicize it and so printing the tanya, publishing the tanya was part of this process of the revelation of the teachings of pushing the envelope and revealing the secrets of the Torah, the hidden most parts of the Torah, the innermost secrets, the crown jewels that were hidden for thousands of years. And al took it upon himself to be the one to take this, all of this out of the closet, so to speak, and to reveal it and to publicize it and to publish it. So knowing that there's going to be tremendous opposition, and there was al Rebbe almost lost his life. He was, imprisoned. he was in They informed on him. They libeled him. They slandered him that he was a, a, a that he was a foreign agent working working for the enemy, and he could have been he could have lost his life. al Tarabi went forth and from strength to strength. So this is a major. This was a major part of publicizing and revealing the teachings of the Bar which is a preparation for the coming of Mashiach. So the Baal Shem Tev cried that the Rebbe said we have to do whatever, he took it upon himself to be the one, to make it happen, to make it a reality. And with each passing generation, each Rebbe took it one step further. And the Rebbe, our Rebbe took, published over 6,000 tanya's, literally in every city in the world, including right here in the Chabad House. And today there are over 5,000 Chabad Houses like this one, every Chabad house is a Tanya house. And there are hundreds of thousands of Jews who study Tanya on a daily basis, who are hooked on Tanya. So this is all part of the wellsprings being made available and accessible and flooding the world with Hasidus, flooding the world with the knowledge and the awareness and the teachings of the Valshem So the Alter Rebbe took this directive He took it to heart, and he was told by his teacher, that's his mission in life. He he is the one who's going to fulfill this directive of Mashiach to the Bar personal directive. And the Chabad Hasidus, that's why the Alter Rebbe founded the movement. He says, this movement of Chabad is not for a segment of the Jewish people. It's meant for every single Jew. The wellspring has to reach each and every Jew. What the Rebbe did by publishing the Tanya is that he actually communicated the wellspring itself. When you study Tanya, you have the Rebbe himself, the Baal Shem Tov himself. It's not, it's not just nice little words, a nice little insight, a nice little inspirational word. You know, that's a mockery. That's not, that's not spreading, publicizing the wellspring. Publicizing the wellspring is publicizing the wellspring itself. Not just a little nugget, a little tiny little dusting, a little paste. No, the wellspring itself, and all its glory, and all its intensity, and in all its depth. Al-Tarebi communicated with each and every one of us. And he allowed us to communicate the innermost depth to our minds. That we should be able to grasp it, internalize it, integrate it, be inspired by it, get excited by it. And we in turn have to also, by studying the Tanya, anyone who studies Tanya, we in turn also have to publicize and communicate and teach others and spread the wellspring itself. So that would explain why the Alter Rebbe, what motivated the Alter Rebbe ultimately to publicize this work, publish the work, write the work, publish the work, and publicize it. And uh, with each passing day, more and more Jews are discovering Tanya. And they're becoming hooked on Tanya. This is the fulfillment of the Mashiach. This is the fulfillment of Mashiach's directive to the Baal Shemta. So every one of us, in a sense, we are part of this. And today, thank God for the Internet. Here we have the opportunity to literally Spread the Tanya to every corner of the world. How many countries is is Lessons in Tanya listened to? 80 countries. 176. Soon. (laughs) Even including the Middle East, besides Israel. Right? One of the Arab countries, right? We have some listeners. So today we have the opportunity to really publicize the wellspring itself. So this is a continuation of what the Rebbe took upon himself of publicizing, first and foremost, publicizing it ourselves. Because we teach by example. When we're on fire, we're inspired, and words from the heart enter the heart. It's not what you say, it's who you are, it's what you do. And... So, first we have to internalize the message of the Tanya, and then we convey some of that passion and enthusiasm. Enthusiasm is contagious. And then people become curious, and then they start learning the Tanya for themselves. They don't have to get it secondhand. Everyone has to learn it firsthand, it has to become their own. So that maybe that maybe would explain why the Alter Rebbe was the first one to really articulate. It wasn't the first Hasidic book that was published. There were books that were published earlier and they were burnt. Um, but the Alter Rebbe was the first one to really articulate the whole Hasidic philosophy and explain it in layman's terms in, a, in a ways that we can understand it. And This is like the Bible of the Hasidic movement. This became the... This is, this is the example of how we have to publicize and communicate to teachers. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.